Good morning, everyone. Excited to bring the word this morning. And I pray that the word will have something for us. I appreciate that. Uh, I guess we are entering into the um, Christmas season, so we're singing some Christmas songs. And, and even how Isaiah chapter 11 kind of tied into the whole thing, promising the coming Messiah. Uh, and I personally always love the chapters of Isaiah 10 and 11. Isaiah 10 that we read last Sunday where God punishes Israel for their wickedness and he sends Assyria to to uh, to take Israel captive. This is approximately, I think it's approximately 100 years before Babylon took Judah captive where Israel took, um, or Assyria took Israel captive for their wickedness and God uses Assyria and he says in Isaiah chapter 10 that he will when I say Assyria, then Siri wants to. Uh, so, <laughs> so when uh, God says that he, that the Assyrians are a tool in His hand, and He will use them to punish Israel for their wickedness, but then He also turns around and says, "Now I will punish Assyria for what they have done to you, Israel." He does not forget His people, and that's the promise of Isaiah 11 is now God says, I have not forgotten about you. You may be in captivity now, but I have not forgotten about you. And I will eventually send the Messiah. And he's speaking, it's a prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 11. And it's a, this, this, this prophecy is, is supposed to bring hope to the Israelites. And he says in chapter 11, verse 10, And that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. In other words, it's a prophecy now. It's no longer the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And that day the Lord will extend his hand to recover the remnant that remains of his people. What a beautiful promise that is. And that is the promise that we cling to as Christians, that God will extend his hand and recover the remnant of his people. So we've been looking again at uh, Colossians chapter Chapter 1, verses 3 to 8 this morning. Colossians is such a beautiful book. It is filled with wonderful theology concerning who Christ is and what his death on the cross has accomplished. Remembering that Paul is in prison when this book was written. Epaphras has traveled all the way from Asia Minor to see Paul in prison to bring him a report of the Colossian church. Obviously, Epaphras must have thought that the condition in the Colossian church must have been quite serious for him to travel that far. So what was this condition for him to travel all the way to see Paul in prison? This condition was outlined in chapter 2 of Colossians, and it is a set of false teachings that was creeping into the church there. These false teachings included the man-made traditions, They included relying on visions, included asceticism, which is severely denying yourself any form of earthly pleasures. Even in the most severe cases, there have been people who even denied themselves basic needs to live. 
Um, it included the worship of angels and ascribing more power to the, de- to, to the demonic realm than what the demonic realm actually holds. Or maybe put differently, exalting the powers and principalities of earth over and above the preeminence of Christ. And this is why Colossians is so Christ-centered, because Paul exhorts his hearers to put Christ where Christ actually is, on the throne at the right hand of the Father as the supreme ruler and God over all the universe. And as we read these verses, think again about how they lay a solid foundation for the case that Paul is about to make against these false teachings that are plaguing the church. How Paul lays the foundation where a believer's hope is to be found in Christ, not something added to the gospel, but in Christ alone. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Again, Keeping in mind, he's setting a foundation here for the false teachings he will be addressing later on. Showing them where true hope is to be found. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Let's pray. Father I come before you I thank you God for your word I thank you for the gospel that has come to us. Not only in word the gospel has come, but it also it has also come in power. Lord, we thank you that you work through the word of truth to bring people to yourself. You work through the word of truth to sanctify your people, to bear fruit and increase among your people. Not only among us as individuals or a body of believers, but also throughout the whole world, God. And I pray, God, that that word, that word of truth would work today, this morning, first of all, in my heart, Father, and also those who are here to hear your word, God. I pray that your spirit would be with us, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the outline, the basic outline of the message is this, that the gospel brings faith, hope, and love, and that the gospel bears fruit. And that we are to be faithful gospel ministers. So the gospel brings faith, hope, and love. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, we see Paul saying, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. As believers, we are to be thankful. A Christian's prayer life is to be characterized by thankfulness. A thankful Christian is a rejoicing Christian. A thankful Christian is a joyful Christian. A thankful Christian sees what he has been given instead of what he is missing. I often think about when I would be reading bedtime stories to our children, and some of our kids will probably remember, but when you read one book, you're done with that book, they'll run off and get another book. And that one is done, they run off, get another book. And when that one is done, off they go again. There's there's never an end to the books. 
And often it's probably more the fact that they just don't really want to go to bed more than anything. But there's always another book to read. Until I say, no, now we have read enough stories and it's time for bed. At this point, sometimes they maybe start complaining a little bit. And I, as a parent, need to remind them to be thankful for the books that I already read to them instead of being unthankful for the books I didn't read to them. And sometimes, as Christians, we need the same reminder, that we need to be thankful for the grace God has bestowed on your life. Be thankful for what he has done for you. Be thankful for what he has given you, instead of complaining about what you think you are missing. An unthankful Christian is a complaining Christian. Being thankful in our prayers is God's will for you. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? That's something I think that we all wonder and ponder and struggle with at times. But there are things in Scripture that clearly tells us what God's will is for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 is one of those places, 16 to 18. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, these are God's will for you. So Paul says, we thank the God, the, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Colossians is a very Christocentric book. Christ is everything to the believer in justification, sanctification, and in glorification. In this verse, we see the relationship that exists within the Trinity between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are two distinct persons within the triune God, and in, in this verse, Paul mentions that relationship. Whereas in other parts of the Coloss- of Colossians, he emphasizes the deity of Christ. But here he talks about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And you'll see in verse 3 that he speaks of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is calling God the Father. But we see very clearly, if we flip over to Colossians verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 15... We see very clearly that Jesus' deity is also emphasized. So first, Paul is speaking of the relationship between the Father and the Son. He emphasizes the Father's deity. Now he emphasizes Jesus' deity in verses, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he is the image of God. The being firstborn means that he, has, he is the authority. It doesn't mean that he was the first created being. It means that he is has a place of authority over creation. In other words, all of creation is the inheritance of the Son from the Father. It is his inheritance. We are his inheritance. Oftentimes, Israel is also called the firstborn nation in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that Israel was the first nation. It means that Israel held a special place of authority in God. And then also skip down to Colossians 1 verse 19. We see that for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then skip over to Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him, again, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or the fullness of the Godhead in some versions dwells bodily. In other words, these verses leave no room for doubt that Jesus is God. The fullness of God, 
There is no part of God missing in the person of Christ. The orthodox view of the Trinity is three persons, one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. One of the most common forms of heresy that almost every Christian is either guilty of currently or has been guilty of in the past is the heresy of a modalist view of the Trinity. It is an example we often hear. And the modalist view of the Trinity is where there's one God who shows up in three different forms. So there's always, so, so basically that would be like one person, one God showing up in three different forms. Sometimes God shows up as the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he shows up as the Son. Sometimes he shows up as the Father. That would be the modalist view. An example that we are probably all familiar of, familiar with, is that I am a dad, I am a son, and I am a brother. So I am also three in one. That's actually a heretical view of the Trinity because I'm still one person. I'm one person, but I'm showing up in three different forms, or three different modes. That's why it's called modalism. And that teaching has been condemned, actually, in church councils through church history. And it teaches that God is one person and one God. But God is three persons and one God. And in reality, there are probably no good human illustrations who show who God really is. But if we could understand God, he probably wouldn't be God. So Paul says he thanks God when we pray for you. And just just one more note. It's also important to remember that that is not a contradiction. Three persons and one God is not a contradiction. If it was three persons, one persons, three gods, one God would be a contradiction. This is, it is a mystery, but it is three persons, one God. So Paul says he thanks God when we, when we pray for you. So often when prayer is mentioned in the New Testament, it's talking about praying for each other. The prayer life of a believer should be one of thankfulness, and it should be one that consists of praying for others. Praying for others will help our love for that person to grow, and it unifies the body of Christ. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Here we see in this verse the reason for Paul's thankfulness and for his prayers. Paul thanks God for their faith and their love. We should be thankful for the faith and love believers possess. But why is he thanking God for the faith that they possess? Why would Paul be thanking God for the faith that the individual possesses? Because the faith and their love is a gift from God. It is not some self-produced faith or feeling of love. It is something that is God-produced. Faith is a gift from God by the grace of God. A very common, well-known verse, Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The faith is not your own doing. This gift of faith is not your own doing. It is the gift from God. For the grace, and then Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. In some versions, the author and the finisher of our faith. In other words, Jesus authored our faith. He started our faith. He found our faith. And he perfects it. In other words, he brings our faith to completion. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. So these verses are right after the monergistic view of the new birth is described. The monergistic view of the new birth is that which places the whole of salvation upon God alone, apart from anything that we do. So from verses 3 to 14, Paul is describing the monergistic view of salvation. And then in verse 15, he starts off with, for this reason. So let's just summarize verse 3 to 14. For this reason. Remember these things in chapters 3, or verses 3 to 14 are the for this reason Paul is talking about in verse 15. Because God has predestined us. He has chosen us from the foundation of the world. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us through his blood. He has forgiven us according to the richness of his grace, according to his purpose. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And your inheritance guarantee does not rely upon you. He is the guarantee. In other words, you don't guarantee your salvation. It is God who does. If we live our lives in a way that although we believe in being saved by grace, but now we must maintain our salvation by works, we will lack the joy the Bible says we are to have as Christians. Because you can't do it. I can't do it. We can't do it. Only God can. God is the guarantee of our salvation. God is working in our lives to sanctify us. And that is where we should find our Christian joy. We cannot maintain our salvation by works any more than we can be saved by our works. And that is often where we will most struggle with the assurance of salvation is when we are attempting to maintain our salvation by our works. So back to verse 15 in Ephesians 1.15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, this faith that God has described and God has worked out in salvation in the previous verses, I do not see, uh, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So without the, the work of the Father, the faith of the believer would not exist. So the reason that we have this faith in the first place is because God has worked it out as described in verses 3 to 14. John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him up, and I will raise him up on the last day. And again in John verse six, chapter 6, verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. If faith is something that is produced in us and only by us, there would be no need to thank the Father for our faith. So not only is Paul thankful for their faith, he is thankful for their love. Love is an outworking of saving faith. It is by our love, it should be evident that we have this saving faith in the first place. And therefore, the Holy Spirit actually working within us. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything, but only faith working through love. So faith working through love. Then in John chapter 13, verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. 
By this all people shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This love the believers are to have for one another needs to model the love of Christ to the point of laying down our lives for each other, in service to each other, and even in death. Faith, love, and hope are foundational to the Christian life. Faith rests in the past. Love works in the present. Hope looks to the future. Again, faith rests in the past. Love works in the present. And hope looks to the future. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The faith and love of the Colossians is based upon the hope they have of an eternal glory. Here is the foundation of faith and love. We receive this hope and we receive the gift of faith, and it is, only, it is this faith that carries us. As we heard last Sunday from the book of First Peter, when persecution and trials come, it is hope in the finished work of Christ and the future glory He promised that sustains us, because this hope is from God. It is a hope that is sure. When the world is at war, there is enmity and a sword. Then peace is made between countries, that sword is removed. But that peace will never last, and the sword once again replaces the peace. That is how it is when fallen people make peace. It always seems like such a temporary peace. But God is not like us. And so often we have the same view that God will at any time take our peace away, the same as fallen people do to each other. God is not like us. When God makes peace, God removes the sword and the sword stays away. That is why our hope is secure in Christ. Notice the tense of verse 5. It does not say maybe our hope is laid up in heaven, or might be, or will be. It says it is. For the believer, your hope is already up there. Your hope is there. Our hope is sure because our hope is in God, not man. God is in the driver's seat, not us. Sometimes we hear this illustration given by work salvation people who believe or who say that all we can do is hope and that salvation is not a guarantee. We can never know we are truly saved. All we can do is hope. And we hear the illustration, when we get in a vehicle to go to Edmonton, we can only hope to get there, but there is no guarantee. And it is the same with heaven. We can only hope to get there. There is no guarantee. If we're in the driver's seat of that vehicle, they are absolutely right. There is no guarantee. But if God is driving their vehicle, if God is driving our vehicle, that is where our guarantee lies. It's in God, not in us. There is plenty of room for disappointment with that view of hope. Romans 5.5 5 in the New King James and the NASB puts it this way, that hope does not disappoint. There is no room for disappointment in the living Christian hope. Hope is not something sitting up in a dusty old attic with a possibility of thrown out someday. It is a hope that is sure and it is steadfast and it does not disappoint, not because of us, but because God is faithful and He is the one who guards our faith by His power. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3-5. I, I love how this, uh, the hope and the guarantee of our inheritance ties together. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, we have a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation. Our hope lies in our inheritance, which is being guarded by God. In other words, we have inheritance, we have hope, and our hope is directly tied to our guaranteed inheritance. That is why we have hope in the first place, is because our inheritance is guaranteed. Let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him also, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, and you believed in the gospel, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. You see the connection? First Peter says, we have been born again to a living hope that is imperishable and inheritance kept, and to an imperishable inheritance kept by God's power. Then in Ephesians, God says we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And our hope is guaranteed because it is directly tied to our guaranteed inheritance. That is why our hope is living. That is why our hope is imperishable. That is why our hope is sure and steadfast. Because it is directly connected to our guaranteed inheritance. And First Peter verse 3 makes that connection clear. And without this inheritance, we don't have hope. And in Colossians 3.3, 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, says, For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, it's not maybe your life is hidden, it's not your life will be hidden someday, or hopefully it will be. It says your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is a present reality. The Christian hope makes even more sense when held in light of the context of the whole book of Colossians. So when we take the whole book of Colossians as a whole and look at the Christian hope, it even begins to make more sense. The main reason Paul wrote the book was to address the heresies in chapter 2. Here in chapter 1 verse 5, Paul is building upon the true foundation in light of a false foundation of false teachings. So this hope must be a sure and steadfast hope. If it wasn't, then the hope Paul is emphasizing here would be no better than the false hope that he later addresses in chapter 2. So Paul is holding up the true hope in light of the false hope that he will be addressing in chapter 2. If this hope was no more sure than the hope of the false teachings that Paul speaks about in chapter 2, what would be the hope, what would be the point of this Christian hope? If this hope can offer no more than the hope of a false teaching can. What is the point of Christian hope? If all we can do is hope, and if this hope is not sure and steadfast, there would be no point. This Christian hope is no better than any hope that any false teaching can offer. And there would be no point in the Christian faith either. 
In chapter 2, verse 8, he speaks about the deceitfulness of the false hope. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's calling the empty hope of the false teachings empty deceit, according to human traditions. This is the opposite of true hope Paul has just described. Paul is holding up this true hope in light of the false hope. And that is why this true hope is so much better. Paul says in verse 5, This you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Here he tells us where this sure hope is found. It is found only in the gospel. Here and only here lies the true hope. Again in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promise of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. So when you heard the word of truth and you believed in him as when you were sealed. And that is why this is the true hope. And that is why the, in the gospel is where the true hope is found. Again, in contrast with the false teachings in the gospel, in the gospel is where this hope is found. And again, the false teachings have no value. Again, remember that the false teachers were not completely doing away with the gospel. What they were actually doing is they were keeping the gospel and they were adding their teachings to the gospel. But Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23, that these things have an, have an appearance of wisdom when you add something to the gospel that ne- can't necessarily be found in Scripture. You may look wise. You may look wise promoting your self-made religion and, and asceticism and severity to the body. You may look really humble and pious. But he says they are of no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 23. So again, we have the true hope in the gospel, and the empty deceit is apart from the gospel. So they're adding these teachings to the gospel. In reality, this, that is what legalism also attempts to do. It doesn't always do away with the gospel, but it attempts to add virtue. It attempts to add rules, psychology, morality, experiences, and so on to the gospel. The underlying issue is whether the word of truth is in fact sufficient, or do we need extra revelation from God? Or do we need to add something? Has God not really given us enough for all things pertaining to the Christian life in his word? Is the Bible really sufficient? It is a basic assumption that all heresies are rooted in the belief that the Bible is an insufficient revelation and we need more from God to truly know Him and His plans and even His will for our lives. So the second point, the gospel bears fruit. Colossians 1 verse 6. So this gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It is the true gospel that bears true fruit in the believer's life. It is the gospel that increases this fruit in the believer. Remember that salvation is three parts. It is justification, it is sanctification, and it is glorification. Salvation is ongoing. Not just one thing, one thing that happened in the past. It happened in the past and it is continuing for the believer. And it is being like we talked about, 
our salvation process is being guarded by the power of God until ultimate glorification. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So salvation, again, is something that is ongoing and it is guarded by God. Our sanctification is as much part of being saved as our justification was in the past. It is through the power of the gospel we are being sanctified in the word of truth, not in rules and regulations meant to merely make us look more sanctified in outward appearance, but hold no real value according to chapter 2, verse 23. It is truth of the gospel which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth and godliness go hand in hand. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who has never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Again we, <coughs> again we see how our hope is sure in that God who never lies has promised us the hope of eternal life before the ages began. So we see here, in fact, if godliness is absent in a person's life, it is, it is evidence of a false gospel in their profession and they do not actually agree with the truth of the true gospel because knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Again, sound doctrine, sound theology produces godliness while false doctrine produces ungodliness. Douglas Moo explains it this way. He says, The gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, not by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. Again, the gospel is authenticated not by its truth only, nor by its power in people's lives only, but by both working in tandem. Sometimes there will be people who seem to be living godly lives, but the Jesus they confess is not the Jesus of the Scripture. There are those, for example, who confess that Jesus had to be born again when he died on the cross, or that Jesus is not really in control, and he is actually just controlled by our faith, that Jesus' hands are handcuffed, and he is controlled by our faith, basically like a magic genie that we can pull out of our back pocket whenever we need him. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Are there others who seem to have good theology, but always seem to be Living, living in ungodly lives, whether it be slander or dissension, controversy. Yet the Bible says the true gospel is authenticated in a person's life by sound doctrine and truth, and by the fruit it produces in a person's life. John fifteen fifteen, Jesus declares, whoever abides in him, it is he who bears much fruit. The reason Paul is exalting Christ in the book of Colossians is because he wants the reader to understand that all of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification is all through Christ alone. 
He alone is worthy. In Him alone and in His gospel is where salvation and godliness is found, not in piety, asceticism, rules, visions, angel worship, or anything else. And it is in the true gospel that produces fruit. Again, he's holding up, he's comparing this with the false teachings again. It is in the true gospel where that will produce fruit. Your attempt to produce fruit will not produce real lasting fruit. Looking back at verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6 in Colossians, the gospel has come to you as indeed it has in the whole world. It has also gone, gone out into the entire world. The good news has no boundaries and was never meant for just one people group or one nation. The good news of the work of Christ has gone out into the entire world, to all nations, every tribe, every tongue. Colossians 1.23 says, The hope of the gospel that you heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. God has chosen to save people by the gospel and has chosen Christians to be ambassadors for that gospel. Colossians was written approximately 30 years after Christ was crucified, and now 30 years after, the gospel has already gone out into the world, from Jerusalem into Syria, Asia, Greece, Italy, Egypt, North Africa, and Persia. The power of the gospel bears fruit and increases on an international level. It increases and bears fruit on a corporate level within a body of believers, and it increases and bears fruit on an individual level within each individual believer. The good news defeated sin and it bears fruit and it will increase godliness. Since the day in verse 6, since the day denotes a time when this growth and fruit bearing started, when you heard and understood. Hearing the gospel in itself does not cause someone to be saved and start growing in holiness. Many people who do hear the gospel are never actually saved. The gospel is something that must be understood and believed upon for salvation. How can you believe the truth if you do not understand the truth? This is where we need the grace of God to intervene in the life of someone to open their eyes and their hearts in order for them to understand and believe. Remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by God. We need God to help us understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 Actually, down to verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, and he is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. So it is the Spirit of God, up in, in verse 12 in First Colossians, in Corinthians chapter 2, says that the Spirit of God helps us understand the things freely given us by God. If you aren't saved, find yourself longing for God. It could be that God is already working in your life. I mean, you're in church on a Sunday morning, right? Cry out to God for salvation, for an understanding of the gospel. He never prom- or he promises never to turn away those who cry out to him. That longing to come to God, the feeling of guilt, never the feeling of guilt over offending God with your sin, is possibly God already drawing you to Himself. Submit to Him. I'm reminded of Martin Luther how he came to faith. There was so much in Scripture that he didn't understand. And Romans chapter 1 verse 17 was the verse that he probably struggled with the most. The verse is, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All his life, 
Luther thought that this verse meant the only way he could be saved was if he could attain God's perfect righteousness, and yet he knew it was impossible. He said he hated God for it. How could it be good news if no man can attain such righteousness, such perfection, he said. But he continued to study and to pray when one day he realized it wasn't his own righteousness he needed. He needed God's righteousness. He realized the verse wasn't a righteousness God demanded of him, but it was a righteousness that was given to him by God through faith in his son. He said later he knew it was only by the mercies of God that he could ever come to come to that understanding. And if we are saved, then we need to pray for a deeper understanding of the word of God to aid in our spiritual growth. In verses 9 and 10 in Colossians chapter 1, he's basically repeating what he just said. And he said, from the day that we heard, in other words, the day that they heard that when Paul heard the report of the Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Filled with the knowledge of his will and wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Pray that God will help you understand the scriptures for sanctification. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And finally, the, go- the faithful gospel minister. The gospel produces faithful gospel ministers. Colossians 1, verses 7 and 8. And 1, verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So it was Epaphras who brought the report to Paul and told him about the faith, the love and faith and hope of the Colossians. And he also brought the report of the false teachings in chapter 2. Epaphras most likely started the church there in Colossae and was obviously considered one of, being, considered one of the leaders, being the one who was teaching the people and being the one who traveled to see Paul to bring the report. He seems to be quite concerned with the teachings that were creeping into the church in order for him to travel such a great distance. And that's a pretty far ways to walk. At Philemon 23, Paul calls Epaphras a fellow prisoner. It seems for some reason Epaphras was also arrested and detained in prison with, along with Paul. It is in the context of the book of Colossians as a whole again. Remember, the context of the book of Colossians as a whole brings shed so much more light on these verses that we also appreciate and understand the role of Epaphras. Well before Paul addresses the false teachings in chapter 2, he is already setting the foundation which he wants the people to understand. He wants the people to remove themselves away from the false teachers and hold to what Epaphras has taught them. Now he is holding up Epaphras in light of who the false teachers were. They have been drifting away from what Epaphras has taught, and have found others who will itch their ears. Look again at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ. Now let's look at a description of the false teachers in Colossians 2 verse 8. Same verse we read before. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ. The false teachers taught not according to Christ. The false teachers, Epaphras is called a beloved fellow servant and a, fall, and a faithful minister. The false teachers were pers- persuasive yet deceitful. They taught according to human pr- traditions and demonic influence and not according to Christ, while Epaphras taught according to Christ. Paul is gently reminding and encouraging the people to heed Epaphras. Remember what he taught you. Hold fast to what he taught you. Paul actually repeats this exhortation from one seven again in chapter 2, verse 7. So let's look at two, chapter 2, verse 7. Just before the description of the false teachers. He says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, with Epaphras being the teacher, abounding in thanksgiving. He is again referring back to Epaphras and what Epaphras taught them as described in chapter 1. That is what they are to be rooted and built up in and established in. As believers, we too, as Epaphras, must be faithful ministers of Christ. We have been called to this. Just a summary of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 is that we have been saved by grace through faith for works. Often we quit at saved by grace through faith. But if you read all the way down to verse 10, it is saved by grace through faith for works. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a beautiful example of a faithful minister of the gospel of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, that is, in other words, this is the ministry, now he's going to describe the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given by God. And that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. An ambassador was somebody who would go before the king. Before, If the king was traveling from one country to another country, the ambassador would go before the king and he would declare the king is coming. He would bring the news of the king. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. This appeal of the message of the reconciliation, the message of the gospel, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And as ministers of the, or as messengers of this message, as ambassadors, we beseech people, we implore people, we plead with people, we beg with people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 8, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And Paul here confirms that it was indeed Epaphras who delivered this news to him on behalf of the Colossian church. Here we also see the only mention of the third person of the Trinity in the book of Colossians. In these few verses we have looked at today, we have seen the full picture of the Trinity at work, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who created this love in the people. 
The Holy Spirit works together with the word of truth and through the word of truth to create this love and to sanctify the believer. That is why the word of truth, the word of God, is active and living and the gospel is powerful for salvation because the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the word of God. He is absent. The Holy Spirit is absent in false teachings which are over and above what the Bible says. That is why there is no power in falsehoods or anything added to the scriptures or anything added to the gospel. When we spend time in God's word, the Spirit will work through his word in our life. This is how the gospel bears fruit and increases in the believer, by the work of the Holy Spirit upon hearing and reading the word of truth. Galatians chapter 3 verse 2 reads, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works? Rhetorical question. Did you receive the Spirit by works or of the law or by hearing with faith? We receive the Spirit when we heard with faith. It is through the Word that the Spirit works. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It is foolish to think we can become more holy of ourselves through the flesh than through the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies us through the Word. God calls His children to holiness. God calls His children to holiness, then graciously gives what He commands by the power of the Gospel through the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we must stay away from any notion that teaches that tradition, piety, asceticism, or self-denial have any benefit to the Christian when it comes to sanctification. These are the very thing, things that Paul is condemning in this book. Trusting in these things will turn away our gaze from Christ. Years ago, I read an account of someone who had been delivered from a work salvation religion. She said she realized all the rules and regulations that the church had enforced had simply trained people to act a certain way on the outside and only changed them on the outside, but never actually changes them on the inside. She compared it to a hospital room with 10 people all hooked up on life support. Five of these people were physically dead. The other five were still alive. But yet when you walk around in this room and you see these people laying on their beds, you see them, their chests are moving up and down. They all look exactly the same. They're just laying there with eyes closed. They're all acting exactly the same. And it's impossible to actually tell which of these five were dead and which five were alive because they look exactly the same. They're acting exactly the same. Rules and regulations work in the same way. Legalism works in the same way. They just make everyone act the same. They make everyone look the same on the outside. And it's actually impossible to tell who is spiritually alive and who is spiritually dead. And it's impossible to tell them apart. And that is why rules added to the gospel is so dangerous. Or you have people flocking after every new fad, seeking after experiences and emotions, being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. One of the newer things that we hear about today is the men's and women's encounter, and that is an example of this. It is attempting to add an experience to the word of truth. Just like the false teachers of Colossae were doing, people who get hooked on this type of thing will never really truly be fully satisfied because their whole Christian life is dependent upon how they feel from one spiritual high to the next. And they don't know how to live in that valley in between. 
and they will feel when they're down in that valley in between these experiences, these encounters, that something is missing because they're not relying upon the word of truth as Paul describes here. Remember again, the false teachers Paul is addressing didn't do away with the gospel. They were denying its power by adding to it. They were saying the word of truth isn't really enough. You also need experience. You need rules. You need visions and angels and traditions and so on. They were adding these things to the gospel. And so they are always looking forward to the next experience or spiritual high instead of truly looking to Christ. Their hope in Christ seems to depend on how they feel. But this will make your hope fluctuate up and down as much as your emotions do. If our hope is sure and anchored in Jesus, then our hope is completely separate from how we feel about our hope. And it is unwavering. And it is anchored in this gospel. And that is the good news of the gospel. And we've talked about the gospel today, but what is the gospel? What is the gospel that is so deep and so rich that it can do this work in a person's life? And it is that God is holy and he is perfect. Because God is holy and because he is perfect, he demands perfection, or otherwise he wouldn't be perfect. A perfect being must demand perfection. He must punish sin, or he wouldn't be perfect. A perfect being must punish imperfections, must punish sin. A good judge will punish crime. A good judge will punish sin. If a judge would let a person get away with murder, he isn't a good judge. He's a criminal. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And that is God's punishment. As the judge, that is his punishment on people. When we sin, we deserve to die. Something must die. The wages of sin is death. Sin can only be paid for by death. When you look throughout the whole Old Testament, we see examples of this, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, an animal died. God killed an animal to cover them. An innocent animal died for their sins. We see it with the Passover when God told them to kill, an, to kill a spotless lamb without blemish and put it on the doorpost of the entrance so death would pass over. We see it in the animal sacrifices. Every time a Jew had sinned, every time a Jew sinned, they had to sacrifice an innocent spotless lamb without blemish. And all this pointed to Jesus, who was the ultimate unblemished spotless lamb of God. And God sent Jesus to die as a punishment for our sin, so that when we believe the gospel, God takes our sin and puts them on Jesus. That is why our we can't maintain our salvation with works. We can't improve on this righteousness that God has already given us. We can't improve on it. When, God, when we believe the gospel, God takes our sin and puts them on Jesus. And he takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it on us. And God sees the righteousness of his son when he looks at the believer. When we believe this gospel, remember God promises to never turn away anybody who calls upon him. And this is the gospel that has the power to not only save us, but to sanctify us, to, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I thank you, God, for your word, the word of truth. And I pray, Father, your gospel is so rich and it is so deep. And it is something that must be shared, something that must be heard and understood for salvation. And yet, not only that, God, but we can spend the rest of our lives studying what it means that you died on the cross for our sins. 
And this will bring so much fruit in our lives, Lord, the more we understand what you have truly done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.